Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This is not a normal podcast, it's a bonus podcast. Hey, then, another podcast in your week, it's a bonus podcast. What? Another podcast? But I've already listened to your voice this week, do yeb? Yes, hello, everyone. I'm afraid it's yet another podcast from me, but this one is a bonus podcast. Exciting! Uh, you might remember that those of you that donate to the Patreon, the good, good Patreon donators of this podcast, if you don't, patreon.com forward slash bro. And those of you that donate to the Kofi, ko-fi.com forward slash bro. God, I have to say that so often. Um, I used all your donations to buy myself a dandy ticket to the Labour Conference and I went there all by myself like a grown-up on the 26th of September 2017, a gorgeous sunny Tuesday in the autumns in the Britons. Anyway, I thought as you donated, it would be only fair of me to record some of the chats that I had with some people while I was there, and so I ran around with my little microphone like a total uh, rookie journalist, and um, I interviewed some people running some of the stalls, I interviewed a counsellor I know, and I interviewed a couple of people as part of the Momentum and the World Transform team, um, and I did try to sneakily record some of the speeches and panels I heard, but it turns out my microphone isn't that good. So anyway, um, hopefully this will be enough. There were other bits I'd hoped to include, but I'll be honest, it got to about three or four o'clock and I just, I'd had enough, so I went to go have some booze. Um, hopefully this will provide a little insight, though, to what the conference was like. Um, I'd never been to one before um, and it was properly good fun. It's like a sort of festival, only instead of bands, there's just politics. And it's funny, because now that I explain that in words, it doesn't sound as fun as it actually was. Um, I mean, imagine, imagine if just Glastonbury was talking. Anyway, uh, this might give you a little feel of what it was like to be at the Labour Conference if you weren't there. If you were there, this might give you a feel of what it was like uh, to be in the exact places where I was. And if you're one of the people I was talking to, then you might not need to listen to this because you've heard it already. Anyway, uh, here you go. Have a little taster of what Labour Conference 2017, but specifically on Tuesday the 26th of September 2017, was like from Tin and the Duyeb's point of view. Get this in your ears. Tin and off to the Labour Conference. Hey, Tin and off to the Labour Conference. He went all by himself like a really big boy. He is off to the Labour Conference. Hey, listen to him at the Labour Conference. Hey, Tin and off to the Labour Conference. 
Hello, pod listeners. Uh, I am on a train to Brighton for the Labour conference. Very exciting. It is uh, quite early. Um, I mean, it's not that early for you. It's probably not early with your real lives. For me, uh, very early indeed. People say the early bird catches the worm, but I'm fairly certain that the bird after that gets to have a full English breakfast and enjoys its life without feeling shitty and grumpy all day long. How do people, because I'm never up at this time, right? How do people look good at this time of day? Genuinely baffles me um, how they do that. I can only assume that the requisite parts of their body that normally look shit haven't yet woken up. That can be the only excuse. Anyway, I'm on a train uh, that doesn't have any plug sockets. Bloody hell, what's going on? My phone's nearly dead already. I'm going to turn up to this conference all charged up to campaign for rail renationalisation as long as there's some bloody plug sockets and loo roll in the toilet. Um, there is loo roll in the toilet. This train's really not that bad. Although it does go past loads of places I don't think exist. I mean, hassocks. That isn't a place, is it? That's somewhere, I, I think that's some sort of like 18th century device to hoik up your underpants. Anyway, uh, I'm on the train. I've made loads of plans for the conference today. I've uh, made a little list of all the events I wanted to go and see. And then about 10 minutes ago, I checked the conference app on my phone and um, realised that I'd made all my plans based on yesterday's events. So uh, well done me. Pretty good. So I've made another plan uh, and hopefully I should go and see some interesting things, have a little chat with some people, generally pick up uh, some Labour conference ambiance. Oh, look, I'm a poet, but don't know it. And then it'll be all up in your ears and you'll feel like, wow, I'm at the conference as well. Um, except you won't be. I mean, unless you are, you might be. But then you wouldn't be listening to this. Oh, God. I bet right now you're thinking, God, it feels like I'm on a train with all this train noise. You might actually be on a train. Highly likely. Have a look around you. Just check in case. Uh, brilliant. More from me in a bit when I get to the conference. Ooh, proper investigative journalism. Right, so I am here now at the Labour conference, and as you can probably hear, it's, um, well, you could have heard a minute ago, it's quite busy, it's gone quiet now. Right, I am with Nick at the Global Justice Now stall. Um, Nick, tell me about it. <laughs> uh, we're here to campaign, essentially our main campaign at the moment is about trade policy, because, you know, we've got a Secretary of State, Liam Fox, flying all over the world to Gulf countries, to the Philippines, uh, to Turkey, to see Donald Trump in the US, trying to sign up to trade deals that will come into effect after Brexit. And we're really worried that MPs, as things stand, have virtually no power to scrutinise him, to amend what he's doing, to stop what he's doing. Um, so we're calling for, um, first of all, educating Parliament so that it knows its lack of power in this matter, um, and then secondly, to pass new laws so that we actually have some democratic power over our trade policy. Because, you know, these days, trade policy isn't just about reducing tariffs, you know, the taxes that you pay on goods when they come into a country. It's about widespread deregulation in an economy. It's about liberalisation, privatisation. Um, it's about giving uh, overseas businesses and big investors the 1% huge amounts of power over our economy and society. So it's really, really vital that MPs have some power to reign in a government as out of control as this one uh, when it comes to trade deals. So uh, obviously you're not a fan of chlorinated chicken, um, but uh, apart from that, is, is this, I'm guessing this is even more of an issue now than normal because of Brexit? Yeah, that's right. I mean, you know, we've had 40 years where we've not been signing our own trade deals. They've been signed on our behalf by the European Union. Um, and, and, and our organisation has been complaining for most of that time that the European Parliament and, and, and democratic forces at a national level don't have enough control over those trade deals. 
but actually you look at what we're going to be left with after Brexit um, and it looks like a paradise um, in terms of MEPs in the European Parliament being able to set some kind of guidelines for trade deals, to scrutinise trade deals um, and to have proper debates on them. Actually in Britain, Parliament gets none of that. I mean, you know, CETA, the very controversial trade deal between Canada and the European Union, it, Liam Fox and the British government signed up to that without a single debate happening in Parliament. I mean, they were told off by committees, but they just said, well, we don't ultimately need to. There's no time. We're just going to do it. We think it's in the interest of this country. So that's the power they've got upon leaving. And you, you see it, don't you, with all sorts of laws that are being introduced by the government at the moment, the Great Repeal Bill. There's a trade bill coming out very soon. There's an immigration bill. And one of our really huge concerns is many people voted to leave the European Union on the basis they wanted to take back control of um, the country and the decisions that we make but actually what we see at the moment is just a massive power vacuum that the government are stepping into and giving themselves enormous amounts of power probably more than a government's ever had in peacetime in this country um, and we really need to start mobilizing to oppose this absolutely I, I um, because I remember one of the sort of progressive reasons for brexit that people told me was that they wanted to stop TTIP but what uh, you're saying and what it seems evident is that we're going to get a lot more TTIP type deals unless we can stop Liam Fox from having having lots of holidays with his friend. Could, yeah. be, could be exactly the same. I mean, you know, May's just been over to see Trudeau in Canada and said CETA is, should be the model for, for, for how we do trade deals around the world. Um, you know, she was the first Prime Minister to go and see Trump. And I mean, uh, delegates at conference will have seen we have a little Donald Trump wandering around <laughs> trying yeah, to I just make saw it, yeah. case <laughs> that actually you, would, you are likely to, if we as an individual country do a trade deal with Trump, get something even worse than TTIP because you won't even get the progressive governments in Europe fighting back and the MEPs fighting back against some of the worst provisions. So you, you look at chlorine chicken, which has become a bit of a symbol of, of, of TTIP, because American agribusiness, which operates on a massive, massive scale, you know, really unpleasant conditions for animals, um, really unpleasant um, hormones and antibiotics being pumped into cows. American agribusiness says the fact that we won't accept those standards in, in Europe or in Britain um, is, is, uh, uh, is protectionism, um, like we're just doing it to keep their products out. We're not. Those are democratic decisions we made about how we want our food to be produced. And the problem with trade deals today is they are that th they've got so much enforcement power that essentially they allow big business to slip through all manner of deregulatory propositions and proposals and policies under the radar in secret behind closed doors so if we want to use brexit you know whatever shape it takes at the end of the day if we want to use it to actually shake things up and say we need a more democratic country and we think that's what people have been crying out for um, then, then trade is one of the major places you want to start. And, you know, as an organisation that's been working on trade for ages, it's, it, it's not been the most sexy of subjects for a long time. But I think people have really got it now. You know, over TTIP, they've realised trade is about basically the way we live in society and how much power we've got as individuals. Absolutely. And how can uh, the listeners get involved with Global Justice Now? Go to the website, obviously. Um, we've got a petition um, around trade, and we're trying to get MPs to sign up to an EDM, which is EDM 128. That's a parliamentary motion that allows MPs to express a, an opinion. Um, at the moment, it's about the 10th most popular. We'd like that to get way up, because although EDMs don't have any power in themselves, they are a really good way, if they get enough signatures, of MPs saying, we are really concerned about this, and we're not going to accept just being rolled over by the government. Um, and of course, in the next few weeks, we're expecting any day, actually, a white paper on the trade bill. In the next few weeks, we're going to know what's in the content of a trade bill and then we want to really start thinking about how we amend that trade bill so that it isn't just something which allows the government to do whatever it likes sign whatever it likes in our name but actually gives real scrutiny transparency and accountability to us the people and to our elected representatives
There's loads of brilliant stalls. I'm currently at the Chinese for Labour stall, uh, and I've just got a Chinese for Labour fortune cookie, which I'm going to open in just a minute. Um, but firstly, I'm here with, um, what's your name? Sam Humphrey. So, Sam Humphrey. Sam Humphrey and... And Christopher... Mm. And, and Christopher... Mm. Um, right, brilliant. Well, nice to meet you both. And I'm really excited. You've got a thing here called the Corbin Comic Book. Can you tell me a little bit about it, Sam? So the Corbin Comic Book is the result of a call for submissions which we made, uh, Self Made Hero, uh, we're a publisher, and we made the uh, call out in July uh, and gave people four weeks to create a comic book about Jeremy Corbyn of up to three pages. <laughs> uh, so we've got everyone from Martin Rosen and Steve Bell uh, from The Guardian to a 14-year-old from Bethnal Green who did, just did it with a felt-tip pen. That is very exciting. Have you got any particular favourites? Well, there, there's a lot, but there's one called Jeremy Corbyn and the Redistribution of Wealth, which is a particular favourite of mine, uh, which is about the naughtiest thing that he's ever done, and you have to buy it to see what that is. That is very exciting. I like the sound of it. I can't imagine it's going to be a Marvel film anytime soon, but I, I thoroughly like the sound of it. Um, and um, Christopher, could you just tell me a little bit about Chinese for Labour? Yeah. So Chinese for Labour is here to represent the Chinese community's views within the Labour Party, helping the party develop policy that will help the Chinese communities, and as well as us trying to get Chinese candidates to stand for election, become a local councillor and an MP, because we still haven't had a, a Chinese MP from the there, Labour Party. There still isn't one at all? Not at all. So this is why we're here, working hard to get us standing for election. Absolutely. I'm quite shocked by that. I'll be honest, I didn't realise at all. That's yeah. and, and, um, uh, and can I ask, have you, had a, have you had a good conference so far? Have you been at the stall the whole time? Yes, I've been at the store the whole time. Uh, it's been great. It's very busy. People coming here to uh, give them this, their policy ideas, what they would like to see in the next manifesto. You can see up, up on the store, we have different lanterns and people write their messages there. And uh, we have ranges from MEPs to party members right, giving us their policy ideas. And we will collate all this together and present it to the party. And I know you're thinking, podcast listener, but Tiernan, what was in your Chinese for Labour fortune cookie? Well, don't get too excited, but no, just don't get too excited. What's it got in it? What's my fortune? Oh, Labour will reinstate the, la- the lower small business corporation tax rate instead of giving tax rates to the rich. Ugh, typical bloody Labour wanting a fortune for everyone. I bet the Conservative fortune cookies are more fun. I bet when you crack them open, they say things like, you now owe us rent for that fortune cookie. That'll be three grand, please, which we'll put into our offshore accounts. Anyway, very tasty cookie, though. Loads more stalls to get to. What are you waiting for? Oh, wait, I know it was me, wasn't it? I was going. Anyway, more stalls. OK, and now I'm at the Make Votes Matter and Labour campaign for electoral reform, which probably is quite self-explanatory from the title, but I'm here with Dan, who can explain it a little bit more. So, Dan, what is your stall all about? OK, so our stall is making the case for Labour to adopt proportional representation. We think it's the future of our democracy. We want to empower people so that we can have more progressive-led governments, more Labour-led governments, rather than these uh, Tory majorities or minorities uh, being propped up uh, by a, a minority of voters uh, to the detriment of, of the many. So, now, I'm, I'm sorry that I do like the idea of proportional representation, but as we've just seen in Germany, uh, that has allowed the AFD to get some seats. And obviously, I, I think I remember reading that UKIP would have got a lot more seats before. Yeah. Are there downsides as well as plus sides? Well, I, I mean, if like uh, 30% of the, the population vote for a party like UKIP, they do deserve seats, but we think that sunlight is the best disinfectant. <laughs> and that, uh, <laughs> 
if you, you give these parties a platform, they'll just embarrass themselves with their uh, backwards ways. Uh, they'll you know, discredit themselves and therefore, you know, the next election, people see sense, they'll come back to you know, more mainstream views. Uh, and that's, that's our hope. Um, and I, I think we see the collapse of UKIP is not something we need to really worry about long term. Sure, and I mean, to be fair, I'm being, uh, I, I'm being kind of snooty because of my own views, yeah. but, but really you're right that if people vote for a party, then we should see a proportional representation of that party in Parliament. Yeah, right? yeah exactly. Uh, it's all about fairness. And um, obviously here at Labour Party Conference, a lot of people quite tribal, uh, looking for those Labour majority governments. We think PR would vastly increase the chances of having a Labour-led government, uh, you know, a progressive alliance, as it were, of um, you know, parties in the Commons all working together to advance you know, our common cause. Now, uh, forgive me if I put you on the spot, um, but yeah. do you know what the figures would have been, say, last election if it had been a proportional representation? Spoilers! Dan didn't have the information, but he did go and get it because he's a really nice guy. And I'm telling you this to uh, fill in for what would otherwise be some very boring audio recordings of a man looking through some leaflets. Yeah, you're welcome. So all the systems uh, tend to benefit Labour more. Labour was starting to gain under AV, which isn't technically proportional. Uh, they were starting to do better under AMS, which is what they use in Scotland and Wales, um, and uh, under STV uh, as well, which is what they use in Northern Ireland. Uh, Labour would, you know, again be uh, larger than the Conservative Party. So PR would definitely, you know, benefit Labour far more than the Conservatives, and that's what it's really all about here at this time. I'm definitely, I'm sold on it. Um, and uh, where can uh, the listeners of the podcast check out? Uh, about Make Votes Matter, where should they find you? Yeah, well, we, we have a website, uh, makevotesmatter.org.uk, uh, <laughs> I want to say, but I'm not sure if you Google it, it will come up quite quickly. Uh, Labour Campaign for Electoral Reform also have a new website launched. You can sign up uh, to get you know briefings and, and newsletters and so on. Uh, and there's, there's plenty of advice up there we've put out online for members looking to pass motions. Uh, you can invite a Labour MP to your constituency to talk about PR. Um, there's all sorts of things you can do to get involved. Uh, and we really want to push for this you know, in the next, uh, next Labour manifesto. <laughs> Hello, listener. Um, having quite an exciting morning so far. Dawn uh, Butler just went past me. Um, there you go. Sort of. Uh, I don't know if that counts as celebrity spotting when it's an MP. Uh, probably not. Anyway, um, it's been lovely. Uh, started by having a look around quite a lot of the exhibits, um, and there's been loads of lovely people on the stalls. Uh, I've had some interesting chats with quite a lot of them, and uh, then I just went to see a talk that had an incredibly long name. Um, let me read it out for you because um, it was far more complicated than I can remember. We which is repowering England, building a progressive, truly left vision for England, in brackets, that doesn't reinforce racist values. Yeah, catchy, huh? Yeah, I'm sure we'll all remember that. Um, anyway, there were some fantastic speeches on it from uh, Lisa Nandy and Clive Lewis and Jane Trowell, and there was one from David Waring that I think was good, but I couldn't hear him because he didn't know how to use a microphone. I mean, honestly, isn't part of politics communication. Anyway, God knows. Um, so, yeah, other stuff to do. Going to try and see Naomi Klein in a little bit. Um, and uh, generally, Everyone seems quite happy. It's really weird. It's really weird to be at a Lifting Conference where everyone's positive. It's bloody lovely. I've got so many badges. I'm like a human pincushion. And my bag is horrendously weighed down with so many leaflets that um, I think I'll go home, read them all, and then create some sort of paper mache hideout. Anyway, uh, the sea is lovely. Uh, and uh, I'm going to have a little stroll along the beach before I head back in. <laughs> Hello, 
you have probably heard of Momentum, uh, either linear, translational, or um, probably more likely the grassroots campaigning group that uh, helped Labour gain quite a lot of votes from young people in the last election. Um, and you might have heard about them because a lot of the press likes to go on and on about Momentum, about how they're some sort of terrifying, domineering force, uh, and they're regularly referred to as a cult, uh, which uh, is a word I have to be very careful saying on a podcast recording. But if you don't know what a cult is, uh, it is a system of religious veneration and devotion directed towards a particular figure or object or something that's become really fashionable amongst a group of section of society which if you look at the latter um, I think they almost certainly are as they were running a fringe alongside the Labour conference called The World Transformed uh, where they had some pretty amazing DJ acts and parties and a pub quiz run by Ed Miliband and lots of very interesting sounding talks Um, and I thought I'd better go find out if they really are some sort of terrifying weird cult uh, or if they're just an alright bunch of people Um, my first experience was that approaching them on the stall I told them I did a podcast and they very quickly gave me a press pass made from a small bit of paper which crumpled very easily in my pocket and I thought do you know what they're probably all right I mean I'm definitely not press in any way I mean look at me I can barely string a sentence together um but uh, I did get this press pass which made me feel very fancy and almost like I was a proper person um and then I tried to use it to get into various events that had sold out and I couldn't get into any of them because they were too sold out and that's how popular all the world transformed fringe actually was um, it seemed to have a real proper buzz and real excitement about it and everyone I met there was no older than sort of 30, 31 which is very impressive for politics an area uh, that normally is dominated by people who look like they've been freshly dug up so I was very excited by that I had a little chat with Mo Afridi from Momentum um, and uh, Anastasia who's her name I can't remember I'm sorry Anastasia who was working on The World Transformed that weekend and I just wanted to ask them a little bit about what they are and if they're as terrifying as various media outlets keep insisting that they are. Get this going. Here we go. Right, I am in... Uh, is this technically TWTHQ? This is, yeah. It's TWT. It's very nice for TWTHQ. It is nice. So yeah. nice, in fact, they're going to knock the building down straight after we're done. Well, this is a depressing way to start an interview. Let's not start with that. Um, I am here with Mo, who worked with TWT last year, but is now with Momentum. And I'm with Anastasia, who's working with TWT this year. So um, let's. I'm going to have to hold this to each of you individually. It's the way this microphone works. Um, Let's start. Well, let's start with you, Mo. You've got. Uh, oh, well, let's start with Anastasia. He's pointing to Anastasia. That's how lovely momentum are. Just handing things <laughs> over. No, you first. Um, Anastasia, how's your how's your conference going? Oh, it's been going so well. I'm really happy with how everything has been going. I think that because we're across nine different venues, it has just been it's been hectic trying to like organise it and make sure everyone's like they need to be. But it's been a brilliant job and everyone has done it. And today's the last day, so. We're just going to go at it and make it the best day it has been. It's, uh, cause I, I've, this is the first day I've been here, which is uh, sad. I would like to have been here before. But um, I've heard more about the World Transform than I have about the Labour Conference from the social medias. Really? That's interesting. Yeah, no, I think our social media team have been bossing it. They've been amazing this year. I think that it's definitely like something that we're really strong on and really hot on our social media team, definitely. And uh, what's, what's been your highlight so far, if you can think of one? Okay, so I'm actually on the party coordinating team. So I think my highlight is obviously I'm going to have to say like the Saturday night party until Tuesday night party. So I'm going to say both parties, but Tuesday (laughs) hasn't happened yet, but it will and it will be amazing. (laughs) Absolutely. Parties, obviously Obviously. the most important thing. Um, And uh, just a bit for the the listeners, really, what is the world transformed? How would you 
summarise it? The way I would summarise it is it's a four-day fringe festival event that's full of culture, arts, political, discussions, workshops, parties, activists coming together, and but also like creating a safe space for like anyone that isn't necessarily involved with politics to just come in and get on board and get involved, find out what it's like. Just generally, it's really relaxed and everyone's super friendly and yeah, like I haven't really been involved for that long. I've only been involved with politics since last, like the election day this year was the first day I went out canvassing and I loved it so much so I got involved with the World Transformed. So I'm very new and I think it's a great space for new people. Excellent. Can I ask then what, what got you into it? It's probably, I probably know the answer, but what got you into it this time then? What, what made you get into politics? Well, obviously Jeremy Corbyn, but um, I, actually <laughs> <laughs> I, um, I actually went to canvas for Marcia de Cordova in Battersea, and she is an inspirational woman, and I was speaking to her, and I went to Momentum that evening to join in with like, watching the election and seeing what was happening, and I just couldn't leave. I literally couldn't leave. I came in the next week and started volunteering. It's so nice to hear people enthusiastic about politics, isn't it? <laughs> Genuinely, it's one of the things I've loved. Uh, this so far, just walking around, taking everyone's positive, but we're all, we're all everyone's positive. But we're on the left wing. This isn't right. People on the left wing should be. This hasn't happened in years. Um, so, Mo, let me come over to you. You're currently working. Uh, at, um, I, I met you on the Momentum store with your, and I should say to listen, Mo's got a very croaky voice, which I think says how uh, great his conference has been so far. Um, how's it all going? It's going brilliantly. It's this is the best conference we could have hoped for. Like, just walking around, the buzz is so positive. There's so many people you speak to, this is their first conference. So many people have been engaged for the first time. And when you speak to someone who's been to 10, 20 or 30 conferences, they're all turning around and saying, this is so much better. It's so much more fun. People are happy. In between all of the serious stuff that has to happen, like the votes that are deciding the direction of the party, there's discussions, there's networking, so much positivity. And it's amazing how many people are here committing four days to defining the future of the Labour Party who weren't involved 12 months ago. They weren't involved 13 months ago. And most of the time when you ask them why, they didn't realise how easy it was. They didn't realise that you can stand for positions, you can be elected, you can become a councillor in your local area. All you need is the passion. You don't have to have a degree in politics. You don't have to read the news every single day and memorise every opinion or anything like that. You just have to be passionate about the people you live with and live around. And that passion is translating into a phenomenal conference. And the attitude of everyone, even the people who disagree. You know, last year there was a leadership election, there was a lot of tension. There were people on different camps. This year, Momentum, Progress, all these factions, they've gone out campaigning together. They've won seats they never imagined they could have won. You know, we've got the People's Republic of Kensington and Chelsea now. <laughs> yeah, I love that. It's, it is such a positive buzz, and it bodes so well, because people like Anastasia, they're young, they're enthusiastic, they're going to be MPs. In 10 years' time, we're going to have people running for office who are going to bring a totally new attitude to politics, one of, we can do it, we've done it, and we're going to do more. That's very exciting. That's very exciting. I'm also very pleased you said that people don't have to have politics to read to get into politics because I there is still I still think like Trotsky is some sort of pig winter sport. <laughs> so um, I am. Um, what I was going to ask is, uh, you know, uh, and, and I know it isn't, but all you hear is momentum's a cult or momentum's taking control of things. And uh, I mean, so far you guys have really disappointed in the cult status. There's been no candles or weird costumes. There's been no weird sacrifices. I'm, I'm quite disappointed. Um, but how would you uh, describe it? And I'll, I'll take you first, Mo. What, what, is, what does momentum mean to you? To me, momentum is 
a place you can come to and say, this is what I believe and this is what I want to achieve. And there are people there who will argue with you and say you're wrong. There are people there who will turn around and say, I agree 100%. But the one thing that is always common is you will find support. You'll find someone who turns around and say, well, if you're really passionate about that, here's how you need to go about it. If you're really passionate about making social media films, we're going to teach you how to make social media films. Whatever content you want to put in them, we're just going to teach you how to make them effective. And I think that that space hasn't existed for so long. You've had to have joined your you know, politics club at school and then gone to your politics club at university and made the networks and stuff like that to get into it. And now you don't. Now there's a group in your local community who will support you. There is a national body who will support you. And what we're seeing is that's all people needed. They just needed a bit of support. They just needed a pat on the back to say, you're not nuts. This is right. That's unjust. That's unfair. They shouldn't close your local library. They shouldn't have a pay cap on nurses. Now, honestly, having a community that is willing to come together and say, you're right, you should fight for what you believe in, has been so powerful and so good. And do you want to add anything to that, Anastasia? I think for me as a volunteer, like coming into Momentum and being so new, everyone is so welcoming and it's like, it is truly, if you make a mistake or anything, it's not up to you to sort it out. It's like, okay, we'll sit down, we'll work this out together. Like, how can we fix it? Like, people understand that you're learning and they don't like ridicule you or expect you to know everything at all. Like, everyone is so willing to teach and like give you knowledge and... Like, I, I don't have a background in politics, but I have learned so much, and I'm like, I still have a lot to learn, but I know that I can through the people that are around me, definitely. Sounds very empowering. It's it very really nice. It really is. Yeah. It really, really is. I think the most, the most common thing we hear from people coming into the office, particularly the press, when they come in, they'll sit down, they'll have a cup of tea with people, and, you know, we have an open-door policy, so you can just walk around and meet people, and every single one, it's always the same. You're not what we expected. <laughs> We thought you were all going to be these hardened people who hand out leaflets about how to bring about the revolution and you just seem like positive, you know, people who are enthused, often hungover, but ready to do stuff. The hungover revolution, yeah, Yeah, it takes a while, we'll do it after brunch. But it's, it's really funny just to see the change people have when they actually meet and interact with people from Momentum. And it's like, you're not what we expected. And it's always like, why did you expect that? It doesn't have to be that way, and hopefully that's the message we're sending out. It doesn't have to be the way it was before. It can be the way you want it to be. And probably quite a a, a silly question, perhaps, but how can people get involved in Momentum if they would like to be? So many different ways. The easiest way is to become a member. All you do is go to peoplesmomentum.com and join in. That's the first step, I'd say. If you can't do that, if you can't afford it, it's like £10 a year. We understand that for some people that's a commitment. You can join the mailing list, you can turn up to meetings, you can go to the trainings. It's just about, if you've got the passion and some time, we'll find a way to help you. And there are 130 local groups in every big city and town. We've got groups that are three people in the middle of the countryside. <laughs> oh, bless. Yeah, and what we found often is the most enthused people are the people who live in communities that are remote, who for the first time have got a chance to do something. And the best example is we have a phone banking app. So the way phone banking used to be was you had to go to one of the big cities, Manchester, London, Birmingham, go into the centre, spend money on travelling, give up an evening, sit down in a room full of phones and cold call loads of people. Right? That's so unaccessible for most people. If you're elderly, if you're a single parent, if you've got care commitment, you can't do that. So we made an app 
you could download and do that calling from home. We made Facebook groups so you could still feel like part of a community. And all of the people who made the most calls during the election lived in remote parts of the country. And the feedback we got was, this is the first time I've been able to do it. And so I love that opportunity. And I think as long as we keep providing people opportunities like that to get involved, everyone can get involved. And it shouldn't, no one should be put off. Excellent. That's a lovely message. And just before I uh, finish, Anastasia, what's um, next for The World Transformed? I know that there's lots of other events that you do as well. I went to the one in London earlier this year. Was it Take Back Control, yeah, which yeah. was fantastic? Um, what have The World Transformed got coming up next? Sleeping, I think. We all need to recover and get some sleep. Um, I think there are, there are going to be some things coming up, but I think we're just focusing on finishing this event first and like then we're going to figure out how we go about the next year but I think it's going to be a good year get the party out of the way first yeah get the party out of the way I'm working till 3am get the party out of the way and then <laughs> and then we're strong then sleep then we figure out what we do next excellent I'm really liking this hungover revolution thing I'm very much on board with this thank you very much both of you cheers and now back to the exhibition hall Okay, so I'm now at the Neighbour stand with Heidi, and this um, this is fascinating. Neighbour is fairer finance for employees, so can you tell me what that's all... What, I mean, I know it says, does what it says on the tin, <laughs> but can you tell me a little bit more about it? Yeah, of course. So we've done um, a large number of pieces of research into really understanding how people feel about their financial situation and how worries and stresses manifest themselves on their, mis on their mental, physical, um, and their overall well-being, their mindset and their attitudes and their behaviours. Um, and off the back of that we provide financial education through the workplace so we're working on a schools project at the moment as well not talking about you put money in this investment or go into this pension it's more about let's get the basics right so the day-to-day -day stuff so what money's coming in what money needs to go out what is a credit score what does APR actually mean so really understanding the basics to get people feeling a bit more comfortable and a bit more confident about those things yeah because it's, it's sort of now you say that I mean I, I left school with no idea about that at all and university was a terrible debt just for several years but I think the amount of people that just have no idea how Com not com it's not complicated if you understand it, but it is complicated if you start without any footing on it whatsoever. Absolutely. And and think of like the, the young 18-year-olds, what chance have they got? They've, they're coming out of full-time education, they're, they're going into the workplace for the first time, and they're getting these pre-approved credit card letters coming through the door. So we really welcome John McDonald's comments yesterday about the credit card cap, because anything we can do to stop people getting into that negative debt situation in the first place is great. Everything we do is habitual so the earlier we can start getting people's attitudes and mindsets right into really understanding and respecting money and using it in the right way is a fantastic thing because so many people get into the workplace get their first paycheck and really just don't have a clue what to do with it so the other side that we do, we are a financial technology company, so we have an online platform that enables us to provide loans and savings products through salary deduction. So those people who are struggling a little bit to manage those day-to-day -day finances, if they've got debt, we could consolidate that debt for them, have one easy repayment for a fixed period of time, no fluctuations, coming out before their money hits their bank account, and then we help educate and support so that they can manage the rest of their money in a more positive way. 
Right, that sounds unbelievably helpful. Um, so go on, give it, give it a plug. What is, uh, for the, the listeners of the podcast, what is the, where's the website? Where should they check it out? So you can check us out at www.neighbour.co.uk. And neighbour is N-E-Y-B-E-R. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm glad you did that. <laughs> Right, I'm at the Humanists UK stand, which have got some excellent badges, including the one I just grabbed, which says, think for yourself, act for everyone. Everyone needs one of those. Um, so it was uh, Jay, was that right? Right, so I'm just here with Jay. Jay, tell me a bit about what Humanists for Labour is all about. Um, so we campaign on a broad range of issues, state secularism issues. We campaign for the separation of church uh, from the state. We campaign for schools to be inclusive and integrated rather than segregated by religion. Um, and we campaign on broad human rights issues, so women's reproductive rights. We've got big campaigns on abortion at the moment, uh, in Northern Ireland on abortion. We've got big campaigns on LGBT rights throughout the UK. We campaign for a compassionate assisted dying law. Um, and generally we campaign for secularism. So that's us. Possibly a stupid question, but isn't the UK a secular state already or not? Is it not enough of a secular state? Um, it's not a secular state at all, really. Um, whilst we have a, a broadly non-religious population, more than half of us now have no religion, we still have an established church. A third of our state-funded schools are run by religious organisations. Public services are, are frequently contracted out to religious organisations too. Um, religious groups have broad exemptions from equalities legislation, allowing them to discriminate along the lines of religion, secular orientation. So there's an awful long way to go, actually, before we have a secular state. Wow, I had I had absolutely no idea. I mean, I, I'm, I'm a North Londoner and, and uh, an atheist, I guess. I'm never really sure. Um, so I had no idea that it was still um, that we weren't as secular as I perhaps I believe. And so, what? Um, in fact, what, how's your conference been so far? Has it been good? It's been really good. We had a uh, what, what what we call our no prayer breakfast this morning, which runs alongside the prayer breakfast, uh, and we talked about all these things, and it was packed out. So it's been good. That is fantastic. What, tell me about a no prayer breakfast. What happens? Uh, so we talk um, about our work. We talk about secular. We talk about the great work that non-religious people do in providing care to people, in providing non-religious weddings and funerals, um, and generally in, in, for example, Alf Dubbs uh, is a a humanist, and his Dubbs Amendment is obviously one of the best things that Parliament's done in recent years. So we just talk about all the great work that non-religious people do, and also some of the work that we need to do to oppose some of the religious privilege and discrimination that goes on. That sounds absolutely fantastic. And just, just out of interest, what, what was for breakfast? Uh, we had sausage sarnies, bacon sarnies, fruit, croissants, orange juice and tea and coffee. That, is, that sounds brilliant. I'm gutted. I missed it. Thank you very much. Cheers, Jay. OK, so this is a little bit of uh, Naomi Klein's speech to the Labour conference that I attended. Um, you might know of Naomi Klein. She is the author of such books as No Logo and The Shock Doctrine, which, I mean, come on, it is really good, but I wish it had been called The Shock Doctrine. Who You missed a trick there, Naomi. Come on. Um, anyway, uh, she was the guest speaker on the day that I was there, um, and she regularly speaks out against sort of a global corporization and globalization and capitalism and things or lots of isations and isms and um this speech was fantastic i thought it was absolutely brilliant and i did try to record it myself uh, from my microphone which i'm not sure was allowed but either way didn't really work so i've nicked this off the interwebs which is probably for the best because also occasionally you would have heard bits uh, of me talking to uh, uh my pal greg who you'll hear later in the show uh, where we were playing a little bit of labor bingo which is where every time someone said uh, for the many not the few uh, you'd have to tick a little box i mean really it is it's a great slogan uh, uh, but sort of 
everyone there was for that message so you didn't need to say it quite as many at times as you thought they could have done it a little bit fewer uh, which probably goes against the whole point of any anyway anyway here's a little bit here's here's a uh, as, as the germans would say here's a klein bit of naomi klein they'd actually use more german words than that but here you go in closing, I want to stress and echoing Kate as your international speaker that none of this can be about turning one nation into some kind of progressive museum. In wealthy countries like yours and mine, we need migration policies and, lev and, and levels of international financing that reflect what we owe to the global south. reflect our historic role in destabilizing their economies and ecologies for many, many years. For instance, during this epic hurricane season, we've heard a lot of talk about the British Virgin Islands and the French Virgin Islands and so on. Rarely was it seen as relevant to observe that these are not reflections of where Europeans like to holiday. They are reflections of the fact that so much of the vast wealth of empire was extracted from these islands in bonded human flesh. It may be inconvenient to note, but this is the wealth that supercharged Europe's and North America's industrial revolution, positioning us as the super polluters we are today. And that, in turn, is intimately connected to the fact that the future and security of island nations are now at grave risk from superstorms, from sea level rise, and from dying coral reefs. What should this mean to us today? It means welcoming migrants and refugees. And it means paying our fair share to help many more countries ramp up justice-based green transitions of their own. Trump Trump going rogue is no excuse to demand less of ourselves in the UK and Canada or anywhere else for that matter. It means the opposite, that we have to demand more of ourselves to pick up the slack until the United States manages to get its sewer system unclogged. <laughs> I firmly believe that all of this work challenging as it is, is a crucial part of the path to victory. That the more ambitious, consistent, and holistic you can be in painting a picture of the world transformed, the more credible a labor government will become. Because you went and showed us that you can win. Now, you have to win. <laughs> We all do. Winning is a moral imperative. The stakes are too high, and time is too short to settle for anything less. Thank you. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. 
Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Right, I am at the CND store, which uh, you can imagine is incredibly necessary right now. I feel you guys have probably got quite a lot on your plate. How's it going? Um, yes, certainly. Um, Trump's attitude to North Korea and the fact that North Korea are um, seemingly getting more powerful weapon, nuclear weapons um, trying to test them uh, that's a great concern to us all and and people are joining more people are joining cnd because they're very concerned about what's happening in that situation because up until recently it sort of felt like more people were on board with the campaign of kind of nuclear disarmament is that correct it suddenly feels like re- this is all flared up again very recently because of trump and kim jong-un but was, has, was there progress before that? Oh, uh, yes. I mean, in fact, the progress that's been made in the last year is at the United Nations, where United Nation, uh, Nations, in, who are part of the UN, um, are very pissed off, basically, with the nuclear weapon states who've signed the Non-Nuclear Proliferation Treaty over 50 years ago and have done nothing at all to... well. They have reduced the weapons, but they're still very heavily armed, and they're not going towards proper full disarmament, which was the deal 50-odd years ago. And so the um, nations at the United Nations have got together and actually created what's now called the Global Nuclear Ban Treaty, and um, it's been negotiated in the last year. They've... um, created all the word and everything and now nations as of last week even were starting to sign up to it and I think there are over 50 have already signed up to it but of course the nuclear weapon states did not attend wanted nothing to do with it you know, and they want nuclear weapons because they need it for their security but nobody else does and can have them I mean that's one of the arguments I always find difficult to understand because they say they need it for security but then there are so many nations that don't have nuclear weapons yep. that seem to be perfectly Absolutely. safe yep uh, uh, th- that's very true, yeah. It's And uh, uh, nations who are in a much more dire... Um, th- there are nations around them who are trying to attack them. You know, they're in a much more insecure position than we are, and yet we can't... Uh, I, we, we don't agree with any nation having nuclear weapons. Uh, you know, end of. No, no way. Um, but we can't encourage... Weapons to not, uh, nations to not take up nuclear weapons, develop nuclear weapons. When we have got them, it's just so hypocritical. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, I, I've seen you've got the stop trident badge right there, and lots yeah. of leaflets about it. Um, 
<laughs> I was going to say, where are we now with that? I know that the, the plan is to still renew Trident, isn't it, at the moment? Um, yes, the government took that uh, decision a little while ago, uh, probably about six months ago. So uh, we are starting to, we've made the formal decision to um, renew Trident. But CND, we want, uh, we want to reverse that decision. We think it's still possible to scrap Trident. And just the sooner we do it, the less money that we spend on it. Um, but yes, we're, we're, we're trying to do that, but we're also trying to um, promote the global nuclear weapons ban, which is a multilateral approach, which will be uh, people are more reassured by that. You know, although we want to get rid of our nuclear weapons now because we, as a, we, we can try and influence our government to do that. We it's less easy to influence other nations of the world to get rid of their nuclear weapons, but very definitely that is what we want to do. Right. And so I, I, I very much I went to Hiroshima a couple of years ago oh, and yeah. remember uh, which left everybody left in tears. It was very moving. But I remember seeing at the end uh, all the people that signed how wonderful the museum was and how awful nuclear weapons are, and so many of them were um, high up government officials from countries with nuclear weapons, which made me incredibly angry indeed. Um, so. Uh, Last question, really, though, is uh, how can listeners get involved if they want to be part of uh, CND UK and join the campaign? Yep, uh, very easy. You can um, search for CND, um, Google it and whatever. Um, we've got a very good comprehensive website with lots of information about what we're doing, um, lots of facts and figures about all the different campaigns that we run. Um, we, um, uh, we campaign and we... Um, Protest and tomorrow, tomorrow afternoon, uh, Thursday the 28th of September, we are protesting in Downing Street um, about uh, what's happening in, in North Korea with Trump and um, that whole situation. Where we think very clearly there is no military solution. Nuclear weapons are never going to help. They're actually exacerbating the situation. So we're we're there tomorrow, but we have um, demonstrations on a regular basis. But. We, we encourage people to write to their MP, to have street stalls, to um, get that message across. I am at the BAME Labour stand with Joe. So, Joe, how's your conference been going? Um, slow bit steady. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm quite so impressed with the number of young people who are taking interest in what we're doing and uh, coming in and signing up. And, um, yeah, we hope that from here, the, um, the activities and do things we do within Labour Party as BAME group would improve. And you've had a number of events on at the conference already. What have been any, any particular highlights? Yes, the, the top one is the diversity night, uh, which took place yesterday and got a few people, you know, legless. To, to <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like a definite highlight, yeah. That's, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> so um, today at 12.30, we're going to have our fringe meeting. So I'm a bit concerned. I don't know how many of them would have woken up. <laughs> <laughs> now you realise maybe you should have had the diversity night last that's night. You could have, yeah. <laughs> that was a plan to have it last night, but obviously some technical hinges, you know, kind of sabotage that. So we're just uh, hoping that, um, yes, we don't shoot ourselves on the food as a result of that, you know. <laughs> so, yes. So, um, now, I'm, I'm not uh, good on the figures, but Labour has a higher number of BAME representatives than other parties. Is that correct? Uh, in terms of uh, parliamentarians, yes, that would be correct, yes. Uh, we have over about, I think, 25, 26, as opposed to other, uh, all the other parties put together. To, right. you know, so. But, so I understand, if I remember, it's about it's still only about 7.8% of the party overall, so it's not anywhere near representational levels. No, no, the target will be 55. 
that's our target and that is when he becomes representative of uh, uh, um, of the, the, the BEM communities so we're still working on that and um, yeah with Jeremy and and uh, the way he's sounding and the way things are going, we probably hope that um, we get there. You know? what, what, what's um, the biggest challenge been? Is it uh, because I, I think I've noticed quite a lot of younger candidates are now considering working in politics and running for politics. Is that becoming easier? Are you seeing more BME uh, candidates coming up? More people that are keen to be involved? Well, there's a few questions on that. He said, <laughs> Sorry, feel free to take them one at a time. Uh, I'm going to sit next to you. Yes, he said, What's the biggest challenge? The biggest challenge is the modernization of the party itself to, for them to be able to remove some of the uh, big obstacles that has uh, uh, historically hindered the involvement of BME community within the party. I think that is the biggest challenge. And the moment we are able to shift that considerably, then you start noticing a more inflow of BME activists uh, you know, getting through. They are interested. BME communities are interested in politics. They want to be involved, um, but they are not having access. For that, us here at the BME headquarters have launched a mentoring and political education program, which I am leading on, um, to uh, start breaking those barriers. Because it's a two-way thing. We have to explain to the community on, on, and uh, assist them to walk the ropes and explain to them the challenges they're going to face and how to overcome that. Then we're going to turn around to, uh, to uh, our colleagues at the party to say, look, um, you are scoring own goals by um, not engaging these people. One of the elections, we had 156 CLPs where the BIM community could determine the, the, um, where the position to determine the result, the outcome of that. We told the party, the party did nothing about that, did not capture, did not make any effort you know, to engage those people. Last election, there were about 30 CLPs. Again, we notified them. Again, we supplied them with a strategy which we can manage, which we can run, and all we need was their permission to engage with that campaign and get these people to turn those to ensure that those CLPs, you know, are winnable for labour. Again, they didn't do anything about it. <laughs> My goodness, it must be so frustrating for you. It is, it is, but you have to understand, well, my understanding, my father told me, politics is a marathon, it's not a sprint race. So if you're in there as a marathon, nine, nine seconds deal, then you're in the wrong place. Because <laughs> 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 the only problem with marathons is they're exhausting. Well, um, look around here, who is not exhausted here? <laughs> And that's not just because of your night last no, night, is no, it? not at all. <laughs> Brilliant. Um, so where can uh, the listeners uh, support and find out more about BAME Labour? Uh, they can uh, look, look, look us up on the internet or going to uh, um, Labour Party website. Then there will be a link there to direct them to, to, to get in there. And, um, yeah, then they can also um, join... Um, through the um, electronically and the application form is there and now we have changed certain things to the extent that we're, we at BAME HQ are more in control of what we are doing now than previously previously we had followed the rules 
by supplying and relying on BAME headquarters to provide us with the admin support. They have not done that effectively, and we are losing people who joined three years ago and never got even a welcome letter, you know, and uh, uh, some of them, money get taken from their accounts without even uh, any correspondence from Labour Party. And uh, guess who they get hold of? Me. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> they come in here and they say, you, I saw you at the, at the last election, last um, conference. You took my money and uh, I didn't get anything. This, this is the sort of thing we get, you know. Oh, God, and you're just sitting here waiting for it all day, yeah. Oh, well, I'll take it on the chin. <laughs> I'm not saying that I'm intentionally unhelpful, but if you listen back to that, I kept saying B-A-M-E, Labour, and Joe kept saying BAME Labour and me, like an ignorant white man kept trying to almost correct him and say no, B-A-M-E, <laughs> what, an, what an arsehole. Anyway, ugh here's more young people I am at the Labour Student Stand with Ellen, um, how's your conference been Ellen? Yeah, it's been really fun, thank you And so tell me about, how, how long have you been involved in Labour Students for? Um, about two years now And so what does that, what does Labour Students involve? I'm no longer a student, it's something that uh, I've no clue of anymore sadly What does it involve being part of Labour Students? So making um, student activists, like going out across the country and getting young people out door knocking for Labour MPs and Assembly members and, yeah, just making the change and getting the student vote. Excellent. And have you noticed a, a big increase in recent? Because that's what a lot of the talk's been about, that there's been a, a much larger youth movement for Labour. Have you noticed that? Yeah, there's a massive youth movement for Labour at the moment and I think it's all because people are recognising that austerity isn't working and it's really having a horrible effect on their lives. Um, and I think, yeah, Labour at the moment is really promising to a lot of young people. Because do you think um, things are particularly tough for younger people? When I'm 36, I'm finding things quite tough myself, but I, I can't imagine what it must be like to be in your early 20s and look at the housing situation as it is and zero-hours contracts and things. Do you think it has a... Do you feel like it has a disproportionate effect on people of your age? Um, maybe not disproportionate effect, but it definitely has a large effect. Um, people are leaving university with mounting amounts of tuition fees and, and debt. Um, they're going into a job market which isn't actually that great and are at fear of like not being able to afford homes. Um, so, yeah, it does have an effect on us. And I think students now really understand that this is going to affect them and that they have the power to make that change. And is there, um, so if people want to get involved, they want to become, if, if there are students, uh, listeners, I think some of them are, I don't know, um, you'll have to let me know. Um, if there are students that are listening and want to get involved, is it, um, I'm guessing Labour students is an affordable way for them to become a Labour member? Oh yeah, definitely. Um, so you just go along to your local Labour club in your student union, and if you don't have one, you can set one up. And yeah, it's a totally affordable way to get involved and organise together. Fantastic. And just one last thing, I noticed you've got an incredible array of all the printed speeches uh, from the conference so far. Any favourites? Um, it's a tricky question to ask. It is. <laughs> I don't think I could possibly say favourites until tomorrow. Oh, that's, that's very diplomatic of you. I'm very impressed. Brilliant. Thank you very much. So, Councillor Greg Sheldon, uh, I know through the Twitters. Hooray! Every now and then, Twitter is useful. Um, and he has very kindly come along to a few of my gigs and my shows, uh, and I last saw him at the Edinburgh Fringe. Um, and that's because Councillor Greg Sheldon also sometimes is a stand-up comedian, as well as being a councillor in the area of Havertry in Exeter. So, I dropped him a line, because uh, I knew he'd be at the Labour conference, and we met up, had a catch-up, had a cup of tea, and then I thought I'd ask him a few questions about what it's like being a councillor. Because, honestly, I 
really have no idea what it is that they do. Here you go. Here's Greg. Okay, so I am in the uh, corridor as uh, John Ashworth is speaking. We're currently ignoring. Oh no, he's just finished. That's probably uh, that was the applause you might hear. And I'm here with Councillor Greg Sheldon, which is uh, you're you're a councillor. I thought it's heavy tree, but it's have a tree, isn't it? It's heavy. It's heavy tree, which is in Exeter. Right, yeah, but it's not like a heavy tree. It's have have. It's like have a tree. It's, it's spelled H E A V I T R W E, but it's pronounced heavy tree. It's in ear, not an e. Yeah. Right, OK. Well, now I've been pronouncing that completely wrong for ages. But there you go. But there you go. But, but Greg is a, a councillor, a, a stand-up, um, amongst other things. So I've, last time I saw you was at the Edinburgh Fringe, which this event is fairly similar to in a number of ways. Oh, yeah. It's, um, th- th- they always say that um, politics is showbiz for um, ugly people. And um, <laughs> having, having been to the Fringe, um, some of the performers there aren't exactly the prettiest. So it, no. it, it, it is very similar, yes. Um, <laughs> it, it, you know, there are Fringe events to the main event, um, again, like Edinburgh. And the same rules apply. You know, if it's an event you really want to go to, you make sure in your queue, in the queue, thirty minutes before it starts, and then you might get a seat. This is, well, this is, you were giving me some excellent tips earlier about how to actually maybe get the refreshments at some of these events. You, you're, a, you're a conference veteran. That's what yeah. it feels like. Well, yeah, I, I think that it's, ooh, I've been coming to conference now for at least seven or eight times in about the last fifteen years, and there are some some, some key rules. Um, it's much easier when you're in government because there are m- 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 many more sponsors for events and the food's better. Um, and I can remember turning up to a nuclear debate. I wasn't remotely interested. I didn't, didn't want it. But I turned up, had the free food and um, went to the thing I wanted to go to in the next room, <laughs> which didn't have food. Um, and so, and you do meet some but most unlikely people. Um, you're sitting having a coffee before the conference starts one morning and you realise that Tory boy Pierce is at the next table to you in the cafe. Really? Oh, that's, that can't have been nice. Well, it wasn't nice for him, but um, <laughs> as we started talking very loudly about how awful he was, but, um, it's, it's, you, you know, it's, it is just bizarre sometimes. And, um, you know, it, it, you, you meet old friends that you haven't seen since last conference and a bunch of us mixed to go out with the MP for lunch, usually one day, which we did this year. There are only 26 of us <laughs> from Exeter. Um, and there were people who couldn't make it, so, you know, there's a big extra contingent at the conference. And so what has been your... You've, you've been here since Sunday, yeah. you said earlier, didn't you? So, well, I arrived Saturday night because the South West had a reception on Saturday night, but that was just, just fun. Um, the conference proper started Sunday, effectively, for me. And, and what's been your highlight? Highlight? Ooh, to, to, to pick one, tricky. Um, Sadiq Khan's speech, um, people raved about it. I wouldn't have said it was amazing. It was solid and workmanlike, but it was the fact that he got to make it to me that was important. You know, to win an election to be mayor of London is, is not, not insignificant, and the power he has to do good things is, is quite, quite significant. And at the moment, that's the biggest thing we run in the country. And a lot of people are telling me that there's going to be an election in six months. I don't see it. I think we're stuck with the Tories till 2022, unfortunately. Yeah, I mean, this is funny, isn't it? Because I think were there an election in six months, it could be quite good for Labour in, uh, in a number of ways. But at the same time, I don't know if I could mentally handle having to do all that again. <laughs> well, you say mentally handle. I don't think I could physically handle it. I have <laughs> yeah. slight arthritis in my knees. And um, on top of sort of referendums on voting reform, general election in 2015, general election in 2017, we had boundary changes in Exeter, which meant 
I was elected for four years in 2015, but then the whole council has to be re-elected when there's a boundary change in 2016. And I came third of the three Labour councils elected, so I'm up again in 2018. So I, I'm averaging about one and a half elections a year at the moment, and it's just like I could, I could really do with just getting it down to one a year for a few years. <laughs> yeah, that's absolutely understandable. And, um, and how long have you been a councillor for now? Um, that's scary. It's, I was first elected in 1996... Um, I, I have, so it's, I mean, I'm up to 22 years next year, but I had three years off due to that perennial disease of politicians, not enough votes. I've lost an election by six votes, and I've lost an election by 300-odd, and losing by six is an awful lot worse. Yeah, I bet. Did you know, like, obviously you won't know exactly which six people cost it to you, but it, sort of, it must make you want to go around and go, Oi, you six, <laughs> you need to sort that out. There is an element of that, and um, it didn't happen to me, but a colleague who, who lost a seat by... 30 votes uh, and the Greens polled 60 votes that time and there's Labour Council you're thinking if you hadn't put a candidate up he'd probably get to see and the Tory who got in wasn't going to be advancing green issues I felt and, and sometimes in politics you, you do have to vote for the least bad option it's not sexy it's not inspirational but it's what grown up politics is sometimes about you know a lot of us don't agree with everything our own party says on occasion but it has to be my party right or wrong and it's like on this issue, I don't happen to think they're right. But publicly, I have to say I agree because of all the other good stuff. And you just have to sometimes swallow hard and take the, the unpleasant medicine to get the good stuff. It's <laughs> very diplomatically put. I'm very impressive uh, for the listener. Uh, Greg is sweating quite profusely right now. Um, so... Uh I was going to ask you, I think, because I, I don't always know what a councillor does. Uh, now, I, I don't sort of, uh, you don't need to list every duty, but what would you kind of, how would you explain it to someone else? Because I think there's a, I think a lot of people wouldn't realise what it is, or the, the extent of what a councillor does. I, it, it'll vary depending where you're on the country. Um, Devon is a two-tier authority, so the county council looks after stuff, and the city council looks after different things. Um, the people who devised this back in the 70s were if I'm being polite, start raving mad. Um, for example, if you walk down the road and there's a sign that says 4th Street Heavertree, you know, street sign, that would be the city council that would be responsible for that. The give way sign that's next to it, because you have to give way at the end of the road, is a highway's responsibility, which is the county council. The, the city council is responsible for collecting your, your, your refuse every week. Uh, you then give it to the county council, whose job it is to dispose of it. Oh, no. I, could, I could go on, so... but. These are my problems, not the voters' problems. Um, and, but, you know, it, it, in essence, councillors deal with planning. Um, personally, I think one of the best things I've achieved in politics, I chaired licensing, and um, the most harrowing meeting I've ever chaired was the renewal of licence for Exeter's, at the time, one and only lap dancing club. The licence which was not renewed. And it's being, as chair, I was obviously completely impartial on I don't really care whether it's closed or not. Spoiler alert, I was thrilled. Um, and, but I didn't even vote to show how impartial I was when I chaired the meeting. And it was, I was so thorough. You know, it was, I, I went through with officers for weeks before. Every T was crossed, every I was dotted, every box was ticked. And when they took us to judicial review, the judge listened for ten minutes and told them to get lost told them they had no right to appeal with the comment you wasted 15 minutes of my day, you're not wasting anybody else's and um, turned to my city solicitor and said you could have costs, you haven't asked them there, he said no but you're going to and you're getting them <laughs> so that's one of these things where you can sort of sit back five years time and think, of a, when you think I'm having a bad day I'm achieving nothing, you, no if I hadn't been there, if we hadn't been running extra, the other lot would have happily just renewed the licence and 
I think Exeter's a better place for not having that type of entertainment for reasons which would fill another podcast. That's <laughs> <laughs> it. And, and yeah, an, an economy. Um, you know, it's it is taking the big view at the moment. We're having some difficulties in Exeter about a new swimming pool we want to build, um, with contractors pulling out and. Other, other partners in a project um, deciding that the economic climate's too risky, which is why we want to do it now when it's risky, because in theory it should be cheaper to build things when no one's building anything, because you've got nothing else you could be doing. But we already have, we're starting the planning for the next big thing in Exeter, and the thing before that was a shopping centre called Princess A that scarily is now 10 years old. Um, and it's just... It's continuous revolution almost. You're like a shark. If you stop moving, you're going to sink. But Exeter's got record levels of low unemployment now um, we needed an agency sweeper at the council the other day because we had, had, had some problems with sickness and the agency couldn't find anyone for us there was literally, this is a living wage job in Exeter, we're proud to be a living wage employer as a council, so we're not paying That's amazing. we pay our street sweepers living wage and we couldn't get someone from an agency on those terms because they didn't have anyone available that's, you know and so it's a problem, but I'd rather have the problems of success. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. And, and do you find, because I think that, um, you know, we're here at this conference, there's a lot of big issues being discussed, such as, uh, you know, uh, housing and, and Grenfell Tower and Brexit and all the sort of things, but you're on the local level. Yeah. Do you find that people are, obviously, well, are they more concerned about what happens immediately? Do you find that you get more of the brunt of their kind of worries and, and problems than, than, say, MPs do or people at higher levels? A absolutely. I mean, I, I don't think the MPs often bothered, and um, I'm sure Jeremy Corbyn isn't, by people complaining about there's a spate of dogs fouling the pavement, <laughs> um, which is an issue I've had recently, and it's it's probably one... You, you can work it out, the route, you know... Uh, the, the hope is that we're gradually working out the route they walk, and we will have an officer sort of not quite, but almost figuratively hiding in the bushes, waiting to leap out. Because it's, but equally, it's one of those things where the world's changed for the better. As a kid, walking to school and back, you know, barely a day went by when you didn't come home and, oh, I've got something on my shoe. Now it's a point worthy of contacting your local councillor about. Whereas, and planning, I'm, I'm lucky, Hevertree is just about... It, 100 years ago, it wasn't in Exeter. Now, if you look at a map, it's pretty much the centre of the, the urban conglomeration. But because Exeter grew more to the east than to the west, so we find ourselves almost in the centre geographically of town, if not the actual centre. So as you can imagine, there's not a lot of places left to build, which means I don't get the bane of most councillors planning. <laughs> yeah, every, but you know, even then you'll get someone wants to put a conservatory on and the neighbours are objecting, and it's just you sometimes just want to say, oh, for the two of you could get a life. You know, it's like... I don't want to build it. Well, under, under protected rights, he can, he can build something that's 30 centimetres shorter. So if you succeed in stopping, he'll just be a conservative that's a foot shorter. You might like to just not object and have a better relationship with your neighbour. <laughs> <laughs> and accept that those 12 inches, in some contexts, 12 inches is a lot. In the context of a conservative on the neighbour's back of their house... 12 inches isn't very much. Okay. What, what I think uh, you've done is you've summarised being a councillor as having a lot of patience and tolerance. That's very, very admirable indeed. <laughs> yeah, seriously, you do have to... Uh, there's a huge element of diplomacy. Um, and I can still remember years ago, my, my ex-wife never could cope with it, um, when I first had a portfolio at the council, and I had a weekend, papers strewn across the dining table, ringing people up, talking to people, umming and ahhing, and I basically had to make a decision I didn't want to make. But it had to be made, and it was like... And I remember saying, but you don't want to do either of those things. I said, no. 
unless I can come up with some brilliant other solution to it, I'm going to have to choose to do one of those things. Nine o'clock, 15 in a meeting on Monday morning. And it's... The leader very kindly said, you decide. <laughs> and, and, and sometimes it's, it's not about the best. It's about the least bad, which is not an inspiring position, but sometimes it's what you have to go with. Other times you do do sort of things that you sort of... And the thing that makes it special is when people say thank you, because it is such a rare thing, I'm afraid. I, can remember I mentioned Princess A Shopping Centre. Um, there was a lot of contentious talk about it. I had to always leave the room whenever it came up at planning because building I worked in was going to get knocked down and I could have been made redundant <laughs> so obviously I have what's called a pecuniary interest in the scheme but I, I was when I was, was allowed to speak about it afterwards I said I had the same view as the, East, the opposite view of the East German border guard who um, when interviewed about the wall coming down said it's a very bad thing I will lose my job <laughs> he, he wasn't seeing the big picture uh, no, I could look and say well even if the bank does get knocked down and even if they have one less branch and I get made redundant brilliant for me personally but in the context of the city as a whole it's a good scheme and I got a lot of letters and a lot of phone calls and uh, even emails would just begin to start get those in large quantities about it and people didn't were, were telling me all sorts of things and it was quite clear from a lot of objections they hadn't looked at the plans <laughs> um, and I remember being there for the launch event walking back to the civic centre with an officer for a meeting and this oh, very formidable old lady walks right out in front of us on the way back and says you're my councillor yes I am I think and she said I wrote to you about this and said you shouldn't build it and how awful it would be and I said I'm sure you did I had quite a lot of those letters she said I'd just like to say I'm really sorry I was wrong it's amazing <laughs> and, and suddenly all the crap and shit you put up with the last three years just, just melts away and you're thinking it's so nice when someone says you know what I'm glad you did this I didn't think you should do it and now you've done it I'm glad you did there you go. I think that's a, that's a nice message to leave on. That, that you know, listeners, if you're there, just say thank you to your councillor every now and then when you appreciate something. That's it. <laughs> Thanks very much, Greg. Cheers. Right. So I'm now at the youth zone stall. So uh, Jane, tell me what's going on here. Uh, the youth zone is not just for young people. It is, that is good to know. Yeah. It is. Um, it's a what you call a consortium, I suppose, of youth organisations and people working with young people, uh, and they get together. at every party conference to get the youth voice into conference because it's quite expensive to come to conference and we have uh, fringe events in here um, all throughout we have um, youth participation events on the Sunday so young people come from all over the country and they're not politically affiliated but they come to quiz the politicians about issues that affect young people. That is brilliant, I bet they're quite good at questioning aren't they? I find that young people are pretty good at just being quite bold at what they want to ask. Yeah, no very much so and they know what they want to what they want to ask and they they get they get answers does that terrify the politicians <laughs> no well <laughs> can do, i suppose it can do but no it's been great this sunday was amazing we had um people from um ed, Mil ed Miliband to andy burnham to um cat smith here talking to young people and you know, taking it on the chin and, and actually being really passionate about young people's issues as well. So that is absolutely fantastic. And uh, can you tell me just about? Uh, we've got you've got quite a lot of um, yeah. fascinating looking leaflets here. Can you give me an example of some of the the uh, youth groups that are working with you as part of this? Yeah, we've got Plan UK, who are a brilliant organisation campaigning for young women's rights. Um, this campaign is amazing. It's about girls' rights to be online and not to be abused. Um, when they're on online and, and girls should be there. It should be safe space for them too. As a centre point with uh, youth homelessness, what works. Um, we've got Brooke, who are a, a 
brilliant um, sexual health-based um, organisation, Learn by Design, volunteering, um, programmes for young people, Ambition, UK Youth, National Youth Agency, loads. Um, Beyond Youth Custody is about rehabilitation of young offenders. So a bit of everything, and we have events throughout conference. So I have just failed to get into uh, a panel with Naomi Klein and Gary Young and Diane Abbott um, that was part of the World Transformed uh, Fringe, which is going on here at the Labour Conference. And it was quite weird because I was in a queue, basically, of hundreds and hundreds of people all waiting to get into the Comedia, where I've done several gigs before. Last time I was there, there were 12 stag dudes. One of them, uh, the stag was dressed like a giant vagina. One was dressed like a baby. Uh, A bit weird um, that they were sitting so near to each other, really. Anyway, uh, last time I was there... (laughs) That's what I was there for. And now lots and lots of people are queuing up to see people like Naomi Klein speak. I can only assume she has an amazing 20-minute headline set. Um, So, but really exciting. It's a nice reason to not be going to an event like that, but that so many other people are enthusiastic about it. So, yeah, uh, I'm no longer a conference virgin. I popped that political cherry. Um, And if you haven't been to a conference before, I would say that I highly recommend it, Um, especially when it's uh, a conference like that, when there's so much enthusiasm and interest in actually talking about politics um, and discussing it uh, between people who who have some hope. God, it was really weird. Um, Obviously, I I was only there for one day on the Tuesday. I didn't uh, see a lot of stuff that I know there's been complaints about. I didn't see if Laura Kunzberg had any bodyguards um i didn't hear anything um anti-semitic or anything about the anti-semitic row um i did want to talk to someone about that but it's it's a hard thing to do you can't sort of run around the conference going i think you're jewish talk to me because already then you're in quite a lot of trouble uh, in the first place and probably not helping things so um something that i will look at in future on the podcast as uh, i will look at uh, corbyn's speech and some of the other elements of it back in the normal podcast when we're away from all this a bonus fun in your week um and obviously there's quite a lot of stuff that I didn't record either, um, I wanted to get some more stuff from some of the speeches um, I am going to stick Clive Lewis's talk um, at the Repowering England uh, very long named seminar that I went to um, I'm going to stick that at the end and that way if it's too bad quality for your ears um, probably if you're on transport it's not going to be good uh, then you can just skip past it but otherwise I think it's well worth a listen, uh, sadly Lisa Nandy's one seems to mostly be full of bus noises uh, which isn't her fault, she wasn't making them, uh, it was because we were right by a busy road in a very overfull venue. Um, and I wanted to talk to more people in the queue, people that attended, um, but it turns out my microphone takes ages to load up, and often by the time it had turned on, we'd be inside the event, and that opportunity had been ruined. So what I have learnt is that I need to be more prepared and have a better microphone. Story of my life. Anyway, um... That's it, really. That's, in summary, my conference. I hope you've got some sort of idea of what it was like to be there from this uh, little bonus episode that's not so little. And uh, in conclusion, I shall leave you with uh, me. More me. But me on Tuesday. 
So I've seen uh, three events. I've talked to loads and loads of people, and um, generally the amazing vibe is. Uh, and I've had this conversation loads of times. Is there's just lots of people here this year that haven't been here before. Um, it has a feeling, as many have told me, um, th- that conferences haven't had. I was speaking to somebody who worked uh, on Jeremy Corbyn's leadership election campaign. Um, one of the lawyers that worked on that, making sure it adhered to all kind of electoral uh, rules. And he was saying that previously Labour conferences almost felt like a corporate meeting, like some sort of arms trade thing with with various uh, stalls for just different airlines and fuel companies and things like that. And he said this year it's just younger people, different people, whole different vibe. Uh, and he said he was very excited by it. And he is not the only person to say that. So it's it's very nice. I have to say I've had a pretty lovely day. I've seen uh, three events. I saw uh, Naomi Klein do a talk. Um, I went to a brilliant Positive Money panel um, with an all-female panel on economics, which is brilliant. Um, and also there was some really good eclairs at that one too. So a double bonus. Um, and uh, saw the one earlier today. And yeah, it's been pretty lovely. However, though, I am now completely pooped uh and uh, i'm pretty sure that a labor conference like this they wouldn't want people to work overtime for nothing so i'm gonna go to the pub yeah tina went to the labor conference tina went to the labor conference he had some nice chats he saw naomi klein he had a fortune cookie had a nice time tina went to the labor conference now here's some badly recorded clive lewis Yeah, so I've got into discussion as um, a black man, uh, proud to be British, uh, who proud to have been in the army, served in Afghanistan, and to be an internationalist and a socialist. I see no contradiction uh, in all of those things. Some people think there should be, I don't. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna read what I prepared because it's I think it's an issue which needs a little bit of detail. Question is, can Labour tell a radical and leftist story of what it means to be English without resorting to xenophobic and militarist cliches? The short answer is yes, it can, yes, it must. Because it's historically been very easy, uh, I think, for people on both sides of the political divide to assume that the Tory party uh, has a natural ownership of, uh, if, you, if you want to call it, of patriotism in general, and especially uh, English patriotism even while we see that it seems to be quite easy for left or centre parties in Scotland and Wales to claim that the same, the same patriotic instinct for themselves have got any hint of contradiction. And it isn't just the other side who do this to us. Many of us do it to ourselves. Some people on the left really are a bit frightened by uh, St. George's flag. Was it? Okay, yeah. Um, <laughs> that's a joke, it's a man. Yeah, I know, I'm really playing. Um, and automatically link them, link it with people being racist uh, and xenophobic parties who, of course, already claim them as exclusively theirs. And that sets up, I think, a feedback loop where the more the left feels anxious about claiming it, and the more the right rabbit we both hands, and the more it happens that our national plan ends up in the hands of freedoms, like the EDL, and it's suddenly theirs. I'm sure anyone can see why that's dangerous, not just for those of us on the left who want to see a real transformation 
of our society. Also the liberals and those in the centre, we end up yielding a key symbol of our national identity to the racist right, and that's not so the, thing, the first thing I wanted to say, just to get it out of the way, let's not be frightened of the word patriotism. It just means that you love your country, you love your home, but you can also be a citizen of the world when you do that. I think, uh, at the heart of it, if you think about what patriotism means, a love of your country, everyone's entitled to think that, to feel that, and I think that you can be a heart-level, gut-level patriot, and also be an internationalist and a socialist. And as I've said, I'm both. The second thing I think is that this identity. Thank you very much. Uh, the second thing is that this identification between Englishness and the right is not quite as clear as some people make out. One of the really fascinating things about the last couple of general elections has been the way that the English have really taken a big step to the left since the financial crisis, and this is a bit overlooked. So I think it's really worth restating. Between 2010. In 2015, when Labour tipped up, rather nervously to the left under Ed Miliband, Labour put on an extra million votes in England. Yeah. And at that didn't add up to much, because of course we lost a crucial 300,000 votes in Scotland, and with them nearly 56. And so we lost badly, but none yet, nonetheless, the English started to move to the left. But between 2015 and 2017, we took a bold and confident step to the left, and planted our flag there and said, come on, Join us, nearly three and a half million voters, um, extra English voters, came over to us. And that means that this June we would have had well over 60% more votes from English voters than we did at the back end of Blairism. And our English votes uh, went up by a cool 41% in the last two years alone. Now I do know that yes, the English toy vote went up too, and we were still behind it win. But those facts, I think, are very interesting to know. My point is that the Corbyn effect, and this sense that we're teetering on the edge of a big leftward change in our national British political culture, is really being driven by the English and to a left, the Welsh. And that's something I have I barely heard mentioned in this discussion in the party and beyond, maybe because it doesn't fit in with the widely held narrative that the English are inherently conservative. But by contrast, we basically stood still between 2015 and 2017 with Scotland in terms of actual votes we received, and we're still getting a whole load less of Scottish votes than we were in 2010. And what makes this surge in support for the English voters so interesting is that if you look at our policies now, you know our bread and policies on the NHS, on housing, on health, on education, and so on, they're really not that radical. I mean, if you've gone back to the 1950s, Herbert Morris would have been proud of the 2017 really was a radical manifesto. It speaks to anyone in Scandinavia or social democratic countries and they go, oh, it wasn't radical, but it seems radical to us for where we've been from that perspective. So the only way that the right-wing press has been able to try and whip up a smear campaign against us is by picking on these emotionally charged, highly symbolic issues. You know the ones, Jeremy Corbyn betrayed, sir. He spoke to the enemy of the war. He didn't sing the national anthem. He wouldn't press the button. Trident. He's a vegetarian. He wears sandals, he supports terrorism, he's pro-immigration, he's a cultural Marxist. Uh, all things which in reality have either no impact at all on anyone's actual or hardly any political significance. As I said, all deeply charged emotional cultural issues, cultural issues and it seems to me very much anti-cliches of English national culture. They're direct opposite, the BPT, monarchist patriot, 
proud of our military, committed to the rule of law, pragmatic, unideological, suspicious of foreigners, and so on, etc., etc. And so that's what the entire press coverage of the election campaign is about. And I've already talked about results. This kind of attack didn't just fail, it absolutely bounced off it. So it turns out that really a huge number of English people can deal with all these supposed cultural taboos being challenged. And that's really interesting. Partly because it means that the political terrain is moving away from these silly theatrical issues and onto the Irish uh, the actual issues that determine our daily lives. But it's also interesting because it's a great little reminder that our values, values of the left, are not some kind of chronic opposition to what it is to be English. And that, that should give us all a great deal. And I don't think it'd be going too far to call the June 2017 general election result the Great English Revolution. But it may perhaps be the heartbreak of something deeper and longer lasting and a crown of profound reorientation of the UK's political culture. I think there's a lot to play for. Um, one of the things I'm keenly aware of is that the narrative in this country, the political mainstream, is changing. We're changing it together. And I think that means that there's an exciting time where we can begin to redefine and take away from the right of this country their inherent natural belief that they own patriotism. And it's time for the Labour Party and the left decent people in this country to show that there is a genuine progressive intent. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.